This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book in PDF. The title of this book is That You May Prosper, Dominion by Covenant by Ray R. Sutton. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 12 The Biblical State Covenant Everything belongs to Christ and should be governed by His Word. The state is no exception, for it is one of the three institutional monopolies governed by covenant. To modern ears, this may sound like a strange note. We should keep in mind at the outset of this chapter, however, one very fundamental presupposition of the Bible. There is no freedom apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, The Son shall make you free. John chapter 8, verse 36. There is no freedom in the family apart from Christ. There is no freedom in the church apart from Christ. There is no freedom in the state apart from Christ. If we believe in Christ, this must be our basic presupposition. There cannot be freedom outside of the Lord of Lords. Unless there is a Christocracy, society ends up in some kind of bondage. Modern man, to the contrary, has attempted to define liberty without the Son of God. Secularized freedom has become the grand political delusion foisted on the people of the West by a demonized public educational system. This has become the system's overarching, should I say underarching, purpose, to indoctrinate a civilization founded on a sacred view of liberty to believe the lie that a secular view has been the key to its success. This is a great deception. This will be the ruin of every liberty as we know it. Why? Freedom apart from Christ is impossible. Beginning with this presupposition so basic to the Christian faith, let us turn our attention to the final sphere of society and examine how to take dominion. Again, we shall see that the state belongs to God, and it too is a covenant. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7. True Transcendence Paul argues that magistrates are ministers of God. Romans chapter 13 verse 4. In the realm of the state we find the same emphasis that we did in the church. The transcendent character of the covenant in the civil realm is God, not the state itself. The state is created by God. It is a divine institution. But it is carefully distinguished from God by the designation minister. If one ignores either, he falls off of a dangerous precipice on the right or left side of the truth. The state should not be allowed to become divinized or a new god. The Puritans believe that if transcendence is placed in the state, then this fear becomes absolutized, the new priesthood. All through history, pagan cultures have tended to be statist, believing in some kind of political salvation. One of many examples in the Bible is Darius, king of Babylon. He set up emperor worship, asking everyone in the land to bow down and worship him. Daniel chapter 6 verse 7. Daniel would not, and was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 through 24. On the other hand, the state is created by God, 
and thus, as an institution, cannot be the enemy of the church. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Does this contradict what I just said? No. We should be careful to distinguish evil men who hold office from the institution itself. Paul was reminding Christians of this fact at a time when Nero was Caesar of Rome. If Christians think the enemy is the state, they end up involved in anarchical activity that is thwarted by God because they are opposing the institution that he made. The anarchist argues along the lines of nominalism. He says that the state does not really exist. What we call the state is simply groups of people acting as individuals for certain purposes. It is not responsible to God as a collective entity, for it has no separate reality. It is not a true representative of the citizens. Rather, certain people speak on behalf of the citizens, despite the fact that citizens cannot delegate power to any independent organization. The statist argues along the lines of realism. He says the state has an existence totally independent of the people who participate in it. No one has individual rights, legal immunities, from the state, for the state is all-encompassing. The biblical answer is the only alternative to both nominalism, anarchism, and realism, statism. The state is a representative collective that can and is judged by God in history. The kingdoms of this world are judged by God throughout history. Kings are responsible before God not just as individuals but as lawful civil representatives of whole populations. Thus, the state is not a deity but a divine institution set up by God. The Lord's transcendence makes magistrates his ministers of justice. If they do not act as his representatives, then he will bring them down. Hierarchy Paul says he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Romans chapter 13 verse 2 the original Greek has an interesting play on words. The words for resist and ordinance have the same Greek root word, tasso, meaning order. So we could paraphrase the verse, the one who stands against the order of authority has opposed the order of God. The state is therefore part of God's hierarchy and is not a social contract formulated by men. Biblical hierarchy draws the connection between God's judgment and history. In Deuteronomy and other covenants, God sets up human authorities to represent himself. The Lord mediates his judgment through these appointed officers. Romans 13 clearly establishes the same relationship. The civil ministers of God wield his sword. His judgment is carried out through them. They are not to act on their own. Moreover, because magistrates minister God's judgment, society sees visible divine consequences to evil acts when the civil servants carry out the Lord's justice. Thus, civil magistrates are authorities set up by God. To oppose them is to oppose God. Does this mean, however, that there is never a place for opposing evil and corruption in the state? No. Paul says, submit to the governing authorities, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Notice that the authorities are plural, meaning there is always more than one lawful authority in state, and more than one lawful civil government in society as a whole. There are also rival governments, family and church. This opens the possibility that when one state authority does wrong, a person should be able to appeal this decision, thereby gaining lawful support in opposing him, and still be in submission to other state authorities, thereby establishing him to resist the state without resisting God's authority. Historically, this has been called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. It is also sometimes called the doctrine of interposition. George Washington was a good example. He was troubled over the Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and following passage, when asked to lead the army of the Continental Congress against England. How could he have been involved in a revolution and still obey Romans 13? The first American Revolution was not a revolt of individuals. Lesser magistrates, Continental Congress, were raised up, asserting that they were the true representatives of God and the people. So, when Washington accepted the call, he was not opposing the state so much as he was obeying the true state. This view of hierarchy avoids rebellion, yet it protects the hierarchy of God's chain of command, 
thereby allowing God's people to oppose wickedness among its leaders without becoming rebellious in heart. The state is not absolutized, nor is it undermined. It can be called into question for unrighteousness. Ethics The ethics section of the covenant speaks of the fulfillment of righteousness. How is righteousness fulfilled in the state? What is its standard? I have already hinted at several points that natural law is the unbiblical status measure of righteousness. We shall consider this standard in greater detail in a moment. But Paul says that magistrates are ministers of God, avenging him. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Magistrates are to rule by God's law. If they are to avenge his wrath, by what other law could they rule? But Paul's use in Romans of the wrath of God, orge theo, makes a key connection between the Deuteronomic ethics section and New Testament civil law. Since this is what the magistrate avenges, chapter 13, verse 4, by studying it in Romans, we can arrive at an answer to the question, by what law should the magistrates rule? Early in the book, Paul says, For the wrath of God, orge theo, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul then proceeds to elaborate on what the wrath of God is revealed against. He concludes the passage, lest there be any doubt in the reader's mind that those who practice such things, homosexuality, murder, etc., chapter 1, verses 21 and following, are worthy of death. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Paul's use of worthy of death is helpful because this is an identical phrase that comes out of the Hebrew and Septuagint translations of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 19, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 22, chapter 22, verse 23. Here is the vital connection between the phrase, avenger of God's wrath and the law of God. All magistrate standards should be God's law. What about unbelieving magistrates over unbelieving nations? Should they rule and be ruled by God's law? Yes, they should. Nero was Caesar at the time of the writing of Romans, as evil a ruler who ever lived, at least until the 20th century's totalitarian tyrants. Furthermore, Paul does not make the believing, non-believing distinction in Romans 13. He says there is no authority except from God. Romans chapter 13 verse 1. All men are bound by God's covenantal standard. Is not this Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following? His argument is simple. All men have sinned before God's righteous standard. Since all men are accountable, all need a savior. If they are not accountable, then they don't need a savior. Someone who wants to argue that the unbeliever is not bound by God's covenantal standard ultimately has no basis for presenting the gospel to the unbeliever. If he is not accountable in the area of civil rule, then he has found a loophole in the gospel, an area of neutrality, a king's ex from God. He therefore does not need the Christ of the Bible. The New Testament clearly teaches that civil authorities are supposed to rule by the Bible. Their purpose is ethical. If their function is not ethical, then it becomes manipulative. For example, the Bible makes no provision for prisons, with the exception of holding cells and cities of refuge for cases of manslaughter. Numbers chapter 35 verses 9 through 15. In modern society, many of those who would be put to death under biblical law not only go unpunished but are fed and housed by the taxes of those on the outside. The innocent pay for the crimes of the guilty. Neutral Natural Law The concept of natural law was first developed by the Stoic philosophers of the late classical Greek period. The Greek city-states had collapsed. Alexander the Great had created an empire, but in 322 BC he died. His empire then fragmented into four sections shortly thereafter. What was to become of Greek culture? It was a state-worshipping culture. Salvation and social order were exclusively political. But without a coherent political order, what would become of classical culture? The Stoics created an answer, the doctrine of natural law. 
They argue that there is a universal law structure and that all rational men can apprehend it. This universal law was said to be the basis of universal humanity and therefore the basis of a universal culture. The only trouble was, and is, they could provide no evidence that such a universal legal order exists or that rational minds will universally agree about what this legal order is. In fact, self-proclaimed rational men have argued ever since about reason, right reason, and natural law properly understood. Roman philosophers later adopted Stoic philosophy and used the idea of natural law to justify the Roman Empire. What was fundamental to Stoic theology was its denial of the creator-creature distinction. The Stoics held to a humanistic theory of a common ground between man and God. The Roman philosopher Epictetus had been a student of Seneca's, who also taught the emperor Nero. Nero rewarded Seneca by having him executed in A.D. 65. Epictetus wrote, When a man has learnt to understand the government of the universe, and has realized that there is nothing so great or sovereign or all-inclusive as this frame of things wherein man and God are united, why should he not call himself a citizen of the universe and a son of God? It was the collapse of classical religion and the attendant collapse of classical philosophy which led to the collapse of the Roman Empire, which in turn opened the door historically to the triumph of Christian religion and philosophy. Any attempt to save Western civilization by means of a revival of classical philosophy is suicidal. It is interesting that the last great Stoic philosopher, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, was a persecutor of the Church. Justin Martyr died under his reign. The Bible denies the theological foundation of Stoicism. God and man are distinct, for God is transcendent. Men are created and they share a common humanity, but they do not share common ethical principles after the fall of man. The Bible teaches that all men know the work of God's law, but not the law itself. Paul, a contemporary of Seneca and Epictetus, writes to the church at Rome, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. The problem for a theory of universal natural law is this. There is no assurance that unbelievers will obey the work of the law written in their hearts. Paul had just argued that all men have the testimony of nature before them that God had created it, yet they refuse to worship God but instead worship creeping things. Covenant breakers suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 18b. Therefore God gives them over to the lust of their hearts. Romans chapter 1 verse 24. They become perverse. Romans chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. They are then filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Romans chapter 1 verses 29 through 32. In short, the work of the law in their hearts only serves to condemn them. It cannot be relied on as a way to save them socially or politically. Classical Greek philosophers believed a lie, that man's ethical problem is essentially a lack of knowledge. Paul's warning is clear. Evil men know what is morally right and they deliberately commit evil. God then takes away their understanding. So the fact that men have the work of the law in their hearts guarantees nothing socially, politically, or any other way. Reason does not save men. God saves men. Reason does not heal a political order. God heals it. Natural law theory serves temporarily as a believable political philosophy only when there is a common religious agreement beforehand. 
shatter that religious agreement and natural law theory becomes useless. Thus it never served as an agreed-upon philosophy in politically disintegrating Greece and religiously polytheistic Rome. It began to be taken seriously only after Rome had fallen to Christ, when Christianity provided religious order to Western culture. But the amalgamation between Jerusalem and Athens has never successfully overcome the inherent errors of natural law theory, and in the late 18th century the alliance began to disintegrate, and after Darwin, natural law theory collapsed, never to be taken seriously again except by a handful of conservative humanists and a few Christian intellectuals. Let us not be misled. Natural law theory rests on a self-conscious belief in the possibility of judicial neutrality. Civil law must be neutral, ethically, politically, and religiously. Civil law must permit equal time for Satan. There are Christians who believe in neutrality. They send their children to public schools that rest legally on a doctrine of educational neutrality. There are also Christians who think abortion should be legal. This belief rests on the belief that killing a baby and not killing a baby are morally equivalent acts. God is neutral regarding the killing of babies. That such Christians should also adopt a theory of judicial and political neutrality is understandable. But what is not easily understandable is that Christians who recognize the absurdity of the myth of neutrality in education and abortion cling to just this doctrine in the area of civil law and politics. This is a form of what Rushduni calls intellectual schizophrenia. It is only the Christian who has the law of God itself written in his heart, what the author of Hebrews calls a new covenant, the internalization of the old covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 7 through 13. For a Christian to appeal to a hypothetical, universally shared reason with fallen humanity is to argue that the fall of man did not radically affect man's mind, including his logic. It is to argue that this unaffected common logic can overcome the effects of sin. Anyone who believes this needs to read the works of Cornelius Van Til and R.J. Rushduni. The appeal to natural law theory is pagan to the core. It is in some cases a self-conscious revival of pagan Greek philosophy. Natural law theory is totally opposed to God's law. Sadly, we find throughout Western history that compromised, though well-intentioned Christian philosophers have appealed to the Stoic concept of natural law in support of some neutral system of social and political order. Thomas Aquinas is the most famous of these scholars, but the same mistake is common today. Roger Williams appealed to natural law as the basis of the creation of a supposedly religiously neutral civil government in the 1630s in New England. This is the appeal of just about every Christian who refuses to accept biblical law as the legal foundation of political order and civil righteousness. The only alternative to one law, whether natural or biblical, is judicial pluralism, a constant shifting from principle to principle, the rule of expediency. It is the political theory of polytheism. Pluralism When I speak of the biblical principle of plural authorities, meaning plural governments, I am not speaking of what the modern world calls pluralism. What the modern world calls pluralism is antinomianism and relativism, many moralities. This ultimately means many gods. The Bible calls such a view polytheism or idolatry. First, the effects of pluralism have been devastating to the Christian faith. Man is a religious creature, meaning he is covenantal. The word religion comes from the Latin religo, meaning to bind. This implies the idea of covenant. Nigel Lee says, Religion is the binding tendency in every man to dedicate himself with his whole heart either to the true God or to an idol. In this sense, all men are religious, for every man dedicates his powers to some or other object of worship, either consciously or unconsciously. Technically speaking, religion is a covenantal bond. Man is a religious creature in that he is made of a covenantal fabric. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and following. Everything he attempts, spending money, doing scientific research, writing a book, as well as going to church, is religious in nature. 
As a matter of fact, if a person is a non-Christian, his so-called secular activity is just as religious as going to church because he worships another god through his endeavors and thereby rejects the Christian faith. There is no neutral zone. Thus, pluralism is a misnomer and a myth. Pluralism allows all positions except the biblical one. This is what we see in our society today. In the name of pluralism, the church is being suppressed. Advocates of pluralism know continuity of Christian faith will destroy their idolatrous society, so they have implemented a humanistic theocracy in the name of pluralism. Theocracy is inescapable. Theos equals God. Kratos equals rule. All men have a view of God, and their view always determines how they run society. As David Chilton says, The fact is that all law is religious. All law is based on some ultimate standard of morality and ethics. Every system is founded on the ultimate value of that system, and that ultimate value is the God of that system. The source of law for society is the God of that society. This means that a theocracy is inescapable. All societies are theocracies. The difference is that a society that is not explicitly Christian is a theocracy of a false god. Consider the ramifications of this one failure to comply with the ethics section of the biblical covenant. In the non-biblical society there is more incentive to be a criminal. There are no real visible consequences to breaking God's revealed law. Moreover, those who commit crime are rewarded, being subsidized by the innocent. So the victims have to pay higher and higher taxes as the entire society steadily becomes a civilization of criminals. Eventually, everyone is on the dole, virtually the situation in every modern society. Biblical law, however, determines the specific guide for civil authorities, even the penal sanctions. Sanctions Paul says that the magistrate is given the instrument with which to sanction, the sword, Romans chapter 13, verse 4. But the power of the sword implies a fundamental Deuteronomic element in the application of God's sanctions, the self-maledictory oath. How? Paul says God's wrath is to be brought by the sword on the one who practices evil, Romans chapter 13, verse 4. A man's actions have to be proven evil, hence he is innocent until proven guilty. What does this process have to do with the self-maledictory oath? Everything. The self-maledictory oath is the basis of all government. When a person takes the witness stand, he swears by God that he will tell the whole truth. In the United States, he generally swears with his hand on the Bible. In other words, he covenants. If he does not tell the truth, the self-maledictory oath takes effect. He calls the wrath of God down upon his head. In some cases of perjury, the death penalty could be rendered. At any rate, the oath becomes the foundation of all judicial processes. The presumption is that God renders judgment on the witnesses. They are not just testifying before men, but the judge of all men. It is not men who even render the judgment, but only carry out God's judgment through these witnesses sworn to his allegiance. Thus, if there is no oath, a conviction becomes merely the common consent of a group of individuals who want to do another man in. Atheism leads to chaos in the courts and the worst kinds of injustice. Christianity has always seen the relationship between oath and judgment. Justice is lost without the biblical oath. In 1675, John Taylor, yeoman from Guildford in Surrey, uttered these blasphemous words. Christ is a whoremaster and religion. Christianity is a cheat and profession of Christianity is a cloak and they are both cheats and all the earth is mine and I am a king's son my father sent me hither and made me a fisherman to take vipers and I neither fear God devil nor man and I am a younger brother to Christ an angel of God and no man fears God but a hypocrite Christ is a bastard God damn and confound all gods Christ is the whore's master 
He was charged with blasphemy and taken to the House of Lords for trial. After considerable deliberation, he was then handed over to the common law courts. Never before had they been given jurisdiction over blasphemy. In 1676, however, Taylor was taken before the greatest jurist of the day, Chief Justice Matthew Hale. Hale found him guilty and said, And such kind of wicked blasphemous words were not only an offense to God and religion, but a crime against the laws, state, and government, and therefore punishable in this court. For to say religion is a cheat is to dissolve all those obligations whereby the civil societies are preserved, and that Christianity is parcel of the laws of England, and therefore to reproach the Christian religion is to speak in subversion of the law. Abuse of God's name destroys any notion of true justice. It destroys the whole covenantal fabric of civilization. Here is the importance of the oath. So, without explicitly mentioning the oath, Paul draws greater attention to its necessity. His comments imply the maledictory oath in determining guilt. Then the application of the sword becomes part of the process of creating continuity and discontinuity. The magistrate is involved in the removal of those who practice evil by means of the sword. The wicked are supposed to experience discontinuity in their lives. The righteous maintain social continuity. But what are the evil practices in the New Covenant age for which a person can receive the sword? The rationale for answering this question is the same as the ethics section. By examining what the wrath of God is poured out against in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following, we can begin to see what the magistrate avenges in Romans chapter 13 verse 1 and following. Paul's list at the end of Romans 1 is very similar to the capital offenses of the Old Testament. His summary includes idolatry, homosexuality, murder, and teenage incorrigibility, to name only a few. Romans chapter 1 verses 29 through 31. All of these offenses are capital crimes in the Old Testament. Of course, even in the Old Testament, the death penalty is the maximum and not necessarily the mandatory penalty. The exception is murder because the only appropriate restitution would be to render a life for a life. The maximum, not mandatory, principle would also apply in the New Testament. As we shall see below, Paul includes several less significant offenses in the worthy of death category. Untrustworthy, unloving, deceitful, boastful. Thus, the New Covenant view of the state is not to the end that every nation would become another Hebrew Republic. There are New Testament similarities and dissimilarities between Old and New Testament sanctions that should be noted. Old and New Testaments First, Paul's Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 language indicates that New Testament penal sanctions are similar to the Old Testament. The vast majority of Old Testament penalties should still be instituted. As earlier sections of this book indicate, the proper hermeneutic for determining what carries over into the New Testament is the principle, continue what is not changed in the New Testament. This would apply to the penal sanctions of the Old Testament. The death penalty offenses that should be extended into the New Testament are witchcraft, Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 10 through 11, idolatry, Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 10, murder, Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, blasphemy, Leviticus chapter 24 verses 11 through 23, homosexuality, Leviticus chapter 18 verses 22 through 29, bestiality, Leviticus chapter 18 verse 23, rape, Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 25 through 27, adultery, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, incest, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 14, incorrigibility of teenagers, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 through 20, kidnapping, Exodus chapter 21 verse 16, and some instances of perjury, Deuteronomy chapter 19 verses 19 through 20. Second, the New Testament penal sanctions are dissimilar to the Old Testament. In some instances, they can be more lenient. After the shift from wrath to grace in history, reformability has greater possibility. In the Old Covenant, before redemption comes in history, 
the negative influence of wickedness is so great that it cannot be overcome. It would seem that virtually all of the bad elements of society would have had to be killed for this reason, but in the New Covenant, the kingdom of God has a positive effect on wickedness. Some of the wicked, indeed many more than could have been in the Old Covenant, can be restored. We discover that former homosexuals, for example, are in the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. No death penalty is called for. Thus we see how Paul can speak of the similarity of Old Testament sanctions in Romans 1, and yet maintain the possibility that not every convicted homosexual would have to be put to death according to 1 Corinthians 6. In the New Covenant age, only the unreformable element would be put to death. In some instances, however, the New Covenant sanctions are stricter than the Old Testament. Paul allows in Romans 1, chapter 30 through 31, for other offenses that can draw the death penalty. Arrogance, unmerciful, strife, and others. Why does the New Testament speak this way? Some of these offenses have historical precedent. For example, God put Korah and family to death because they caused strife. Romans chapter 1, verse 29, and Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 50. But at first glance, it might not seem possible to commit an offense tied to arrogance. Romans chapter 1, verse 30. Modern society, however, presents some situations where the death penalty would be appropriate. For example, as recently as Hitler's reign of terror, we find people committing horrible atrocities in the name of super-race doctrine. Their racial arrogance involved such things as frontal lobotomies on Jews. According to Paul's language, therefore, a doctor who performs surgery for such purposes could be put to death. Therefore, the New Covenant application of penal sanctions is both similar and dissimilar to the Old Testament. The historic shift from wrath to grace in Jesus Christ allows for a much fuller and powerful application, guaranteeing a truer continuity and discontinuity with the covenant. Continuity Paul argues that continuity in society should be on the basis of God's law. Romans chapter 13, verse 3a. What about idolatry? Should the magistrate put idolaters to death? How should this be handled? A variety of explanations have been suggested. In the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1630s, Roger Williams proposed that the magistrate should only sanction the last six commandments, avoiding the ones having to do with worship and Sabbath-keeping. The long-term effect has created a multi-religious society, polytheism. Has this been good, and if it is wrong, how could a Christian civilization be legislated? To the question, what have been the long-term effects of Roger Williams' position, the answer is not encouraging for those serious about the Christian faith. The modern church lives in the age of a religious Cold War. A state that is not formally declared war on the church unofficially strives to put it to death. The second question to be considered is, how could a modern Christian civilization be legislated? The answer is, Christian civilization cannot be legislated. To argue that it can would be a return to the humanist heresy of salvation by law. A civilization reflects its God. Its laws reflect that God. We therefore need to ask, how should the legislation of a state reflect the requirements of the Bible? How is the state to serve as God's covenantal representative? Can it do so and also serve as the covenantal representative of Satan? The classic practical problem concerns the issue of cults. They are obviously detrimental to society, but how can the state deal with them? To do so, it would have to define a church. To do that would involve distinguishing a true from a false one. To do that would ban whatever has been declared false, hence the end of pluralism. But how could the state even begin to define the true church? Easy. The Apostles' Creed, to which I referred in the last chapter on the church, has already defined it. Any church that denies it is a cult. Any church that will not confess it is a cult. Any church that violates it has become a cult. The great advantage of the Apostles' Creed is that it would allow for a multi-denominational society, but not a polytheistic society. 
Of course, within this discussion, it should be kept in mind that biblical religion is the only one that truly allows for religious freedom. The reader may think that the position on pluralism that has been taken in this book would not allow for religious diversity. Actually, biblical law allows for private worship, in this sense a limited freedom of religion. The basis is the Old Testament stranger in the land concept. As long as he obeys the commandments of God that are legitimately enforceable by civil government, he enjoys the benefits of a biblical society. During the Reformation, this concept was used to solve the problem of how Protestant countries should deal with Catholicism. In the Netherlands, for example, post-Reformation Catholics were allowed to continue to hold worship, but not to conduct processions down the street. But the Netherlands is one simple example to show how religious diversity could be tolerated. Perhaps in a multi-denominational society, the Apostles' Creed could be used as a minimum standard of orthodoxy. If the West does not return to some kind of Christian theocracy, the price will be its very civilization. Already in England, there are more members of Islam than the Methodist Church. Already in America, Eastern religions and cults are taking over the thinking of large segments of the public school-educated youth. The outcome will be a complete change of society and governmental structure. Law as Covenant as we have seen already in this chapter, oath and covenant form the basis of politics. Civil law reflects civilization and it can also be used to change people's actions, thereby influencing their thinking. To change the law in any area of life is a covenantal act. To take away Christian laws of blasphemy is to point to a change in civilization and to accelerate this change. The whole judicial system changes, reflecting a change in the God of the civilization. Change the judicial system and the whole civilization experiences parallel changes. Humanists know this, but very few Christians have even begun to think about it. Rest assured, however, that modern civil government knows it. At present, civil government in the West wants liberty without the gospel, morality without Christ, affluence without covenant. It is willing to do anything, including the forfeiture of its own lands to Mohammedans, except submit its nation to Christ. Civil leadership is even willing to subsidize polytheism. False Continuity more than one scholar has described the American public government school system as the nation's only established church. It has a self-certified priesthood and graduation from its various hierarchical levels high school, college, graduate school, professional school is one of the most important means of an individual's social and economic advancement. The humanists have successfully used the public schools to overturn Christian civilization. By establishing a substitute priesthood which in turn replaces the true family in the field of education the humanists have been able to reshape the first principles of students, generation after generation. This has all been done in the name of religious neutrality. But public schools are not religiously neutral. Nothing is religiously neutral. People are asked throughout their lives, choose this day which God you will serve. So in the name of neutrality, the God-hating humanists have stolen the hearts and minds of generations of public school students. This process of legalized kidnapping has only begun to be recognized by Christian parents since the 1960s. The rise of the Christian school movement has been the product of this new awareness. But Christian parents need to ask themselves, if there is no neutrality in the abortion room between life and death, and no neutrality in the classroom between God and humanism, how can there be neutrality in the courtroom or legislature between God and humanism? This question is only beginning to be asked. When Christian voters at last make the obvious conclusion there is no difference, there is no neutrality, then a political transformation will take place. The humanist kidnappers will be removed from positions of influence. They will be removed from places where they can tax Christians in order to promote humanist religion. The Christian's educational goal is therefore not to recapture the public schools for Jesus. The public schools are innately immoral. They are substitute churches and substitute families. The Christian goal is to replace the public schools with private Christian schools.
This will re-establish parental authority over children. If the humanists want humanist schools for their children, let them teach their children at home, as the strangers within the gates would have done in the Old Testament. Let no one's tax money be used to finance public education. There is no religiously neutral curriculum. As long as any tax finance school remains open, other than military academics or other schools that train public officials, Christians have not recaptured their children from the kidnappers. They will still be fighting for the future of Christian civilization. There is no neutrality. As long as Christians act as though there is, they will not have taken steps to reclaim the future. Conclusion The humanist political leaders know what they are doing. As long as the civil government subsidizes and educates a society toward polytheism in the name of pluralism through its own educational systems, Christianity will not be allowed a free market opportunity to change the culture. We desperately need a resurgence of covenantally-minded Christians to forge the way. Why covenantally-minded Christians? The covenant is the model to inform the church how to return to its original mandate, discipling the nations. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. How can a nation be discipled if there is confusion over the master plan? As in the two other institutions of society, the state should be structured according to the biblical covenant. All five parts of the Deuteronomic covenant are outlined in Romans. The New Testament did not change the standard by which nations are to be ruled. American society, perhaps more than any other in the history of man, was extremely self-conscious about the biblical concept of covenant. In its early history, one of the first documents was clearly arranged according to the Deuteronomic covenant. In the next chapter, we shall examine the Mayflower Compact. Was it truly a covenantal document? Aside from the indication in the name Compact, it was most definitely a historic covenantal document. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. <laughs>